Well, welcome back. <laughs> we are um, in what amounts to our second to last sermon in this series, Practical Matters. Uh, this has been a series through the middle portion of Deuteronomy where God toward his people is talking about super practical things. Sometimes things that in our 21st century context are a little awkward. We'll have some more of that this morning. But remember what we're doing and what our goal is, is we're, as we look at the word of God, as we study particularly a book of the Bible, we're looking to seek and to understand what God was saying to his people. How would they have received and understood this in their cultural context? And then can we draw any just direct teaching or oftentimes a principle out of that that we can apply to our lives today. So that's the target, to understand in its original context, apply to our lives today. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, uh, I want to invite you to three things. Now, and you, you might be here, you know, people come to church for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes people come to church because there's a certain uh, warmth to the community that's attractive to them. Or perhaps it's the worship music, uh, music uh, upbeat and positive music that you just enjoy. Or maybe it's the kids programming. But if you would not identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, I would invite you, study with us as we look at God's word, ask good questions, even of just those sitting around you. And then finally, consider Jesus. Consider who he is and that he may very well have a call on your life to follow him and to walk with him. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna look at God's word this morning. Father, we just thank you uh, for your word, the Bible. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you for the way that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of, of my heart and it provides us correction, but also great encouragement. And so Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you bring clarity to the word that we look at this morning in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, we're gonna be in Deuteronomy chapter 25 today. We're gonna to look at it in four sections uh, as we look at, again, in, in this section of Deuteronomy, a collection of laws that may at first seem unrelated. And we'll try to draw uh, some of the teaching uh, in putting them together and, again, making application. So uh, chapter 25, verse one. We'll read the first four verses. That Moses writes this to the people. If there is a dispute between men, they are to go to court and the judges will hear their case. And they will clear the innocent and condemn the guilty. If the guilty party deserves to be flogged, that is to be beaten or punished, the judge will make him lie down and be flogged in his presence with a number of lashes appropriate for his crime. He may be flogged with 40 lashes, but no more. Otherwise, if he is flogged with more lashes than these, your brother will be degraded in your sight. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." Uh, so again, we have what may initially look like two unrelated laws, but really both of these laws are dealing with this idea of preserving humane treatment. Preserving humane treatment of those who are even being justly punished and preserving humane treatment of animals, and particularly those that are uh, providing uh, work for human beings. So first, uh, pre preserving humane treatment for those, even those who are being justly punished. There's two sort of rules that Moses puts forth here. One is that there's a limit to the amount of lashes that can be given out uh, in a beating when someone is being judged and, and has been uh, deemed to be punished in this manner. And it was 40 lashes. Anything in excess of this basically meant that the person was worthy of death. And so there was this, uh, this line in the sand now, in a Jewish context, interestingly, uh, they came to, to uh, um, administer this with 39 lashes. Uh, being ever concerned about the persnickety of the rules, they didn't want to miscount and, and transgress the law. And so there were 39 lashes. 
The second uh, limitation, if you will, is that the judge who uh, made the sentence was to be present for the punishment. And this would have ensured two things. One, that the actual punishment that was sentenced would be carried out. And two, I would add that there'd be sort of a modicum of, of compassion in the sentencing. Because the judge himself knew as he sentenced that he was going to watch this happen. He was going to witness it. And so both truthfulness to what was sentenced and a measure of compassion were involved. That this person, in the words of the text, would not be degraded even as they were punished. Well, what about the humane treatment of, of animals? And specifically, we're talking about animals here who were involved in the production of, of food for human beings. It's interesting that in the New Testament, in both 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, Paul takes this exact verse, he quotes it verbatim, and he applies it spiritually. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But that does not negate the literal teaching here, both to God's people, ancient Israel, and to us today. Namely, that while human beings have dominion over animals, that does not license the abuse of animals. In fact, what's inferred here is uh, compassionate care toward animals. And this begins back at God's original creation in Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at this scripture. And God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. Some of your versions will say, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Two truths here. One, human beings are unique and special in God's creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Human beings are the apex of God's creative joy and design as he creates Adam and then Eve and brings them together. And Matthew, or Genesis chapter two draws that out in more detail and it's beautiful and it's intentional. Mankind, human beings, are not simply the next step in the evolutionary process or the most highly evolved mammals. That is not biblical. We are God's special creation, the only part of his creation created in his image. And as such, we're given dominion or rule over all of creation, but particularly the animal kingdom. But that does not license abuse. Now, it's interesting that there's a, a doctrine in the secular culture right now, and I heard it in the news once, said this literally this way. Human beings have no right to have dominion over animals. We're the same. And that is not biblical. God here makes it expressly clear that he's created mankind, mankind to be the managers and or stewards of his creation. And as such, we're held responsible for how we care for that creation. And so there should be very much a special care uh, for the animals that not only are in our lives, but those that are involved in the production of our food and so on and so forth. That's what's insinuated here. And Proverbs 12 says it a little bit more explicitly. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. I wonder if you knew that the Bible actually teach, uh, taught that, like that, that from Genesis chapter one, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and here in Proverbs, that man is actually decreed to steward, to manage, to give care, to not abuse. Well, how do we apply this a little bit broadly here? Uh, God's people, Christians should be governed by a godly compassion, a sense of mercy and care. As we apply that to punishment, if you're a parent, as you punish your parents, as you, you punish your parents, that might happen too. As you discipline your children, do you do so with a sense of what is equitable, but a sensitivity in being compassionate too? There's this balance between leniency, right? We don't want to go that direction and become enablers, but also is there compassion?
And secondly, for the animals that are in your life. And Christians should be the first sort of on the cutting edge of, of caring about our world and conservation of species and all those things. But even the animals that are in your lives, we are not licensed to abuse. Now, there's more we could say here, but I want to focus on kind of our middle and last section so let's move to the next couple of verses. We pick it up. This is really the meat of the chapter. It uh, begins at verse five. And this is what's known in the Bible as the Levirate marriage law. Levirate uh, gets, uh, comes from levir, which is Latin for brother-in-law. And you'll see why as we get into the text. Uh, Moses, again, he writes, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she's to go to the elders at the city gate and say... My brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. And if he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. Then she will declare. Now, this is the law of God in the Mosaic law, right? This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed or the house of the, uns or the, uh, of the family of the unsandaled. Now, this is one of those places where the Old Testament law seems to come to some sort of like a, a, there's a lost in translation thing, right? With what on earth is going on here? You have this law uh, where it's written in an extremely almost legal, matter-of-fact way, and yet it's dealing with all kinds of intimacies, right? So what's happening here uh, in the, again, let's look at the original context. Well, first and foremost, uh, God's people Israel at this time are living in a, in a culture that God had designed that was driven very much by the way that the tribes were divided and maintained and family lines were maintained to the, to the, for the sake of property rights. Listen to how Earl Callan says this in his commentary. He says, the social structure based on family and tribal divisions and the ownership of property by tribes and families were of prime importance in the Mosaic economy. He goes on, he says, consequently, levirate marriage that we read about here, where a brother or nearest relative by marriage takes a childless brother's widow into his home to raise up a descendant was of considerable importance to the continuity of family and the distribution of property. In other words, there is a socioeconomic framework here that is different than how our society works that was, uh, was dependent on the family lines continuing and property continuing. We'll read about that uh, actually later in the book of Deuteronomy. And this was an important practice for God's people for this reason. But despite its sort of legalese way of reading, there is a pastoral heart behind this from God himself. And it's really at least twofold. Number one, there's care for the widow, right? It's that, it's that this woman who had lost her husband and her means of provision and ownership in a very patriarchal society was not left estranged, marginalized, and essentially where she could become an a, a indentured servant or a slave of some kind. There was a provision for her. And then don't miss the fact there's sort of an esteem where this, this is extremely countercultural at the time. This woman gains audience with the male eldership of the town in front of the whole community 
to, to basically call this guy out. Removing his sandal, we'll talk about that in a minute, and spitting in his face. Women are given, in essence, for someone who won't provide an extreme amount of power in this situation uh, because of how they're being left in the lurch. There's a care for the widow that's at stake. The second pastoral motivation is the love for one's brother. The love for one's brother. A brother has been lost and the brother that is left is able to, in a very practical way, take care of his brother's family. We'll see that a little bit more uh, in contrast when we look at an example of this not happening in the Bible. In fact, I want to do that now. I want to look at two Old Testament occurrences where the Levirate marriage law is kind of comes into play. And in these two instances, you'll see that there's a failure to provide in this manner, and there's one success. First one is in Genesis 38. And note that in Genesis 38, this law in Deuteronomy is not codified yet. It's not in writing. But you'll note in the language of Genesis 38, it was clearly understood what the obligation was to the brother-in-law. So let's look at that. Genesis 38. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for her. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord put him to death. You know, there was a rumor going around that I gave Zach all the hard and uncomfortable language and I went away to man camp to have fun. Please note, this isn't even the Deuteronomy text, right? We brought in something else here. But, you know, in jest, and I don't say that to be irreverent, right? This, this series is called Practical Matters, right? God is right in the weeds of our lives. But Onan here, in his response, he clearly knew there was a duty to provide for his widow, right? To care for the widow and to love his brother. And he shirked both of those obligations. He didn't care. What is Onan's concern? His own name, his own reputation, his own property. And so he responds selfishly. Now, these practices certainly don't exist in, in modern Western culture, but you can get the same idea in terms of principle. We're going to get to that in a moment. But what about this idea of being called the family of the unsandaled? I promise you, if you call me shoeless Gary, I will not be hurt. I will not be offended in any way. So what's going on here? Well, it's likely, and we know this from some other extra-biblical ancient texts, that this is related to the idea of commitment and property ownership. That uh, in particular, in, in both uh, ancient Israel and other cultures at the time, when land was purchased, it was common for the purchaser to actually walk the land, sometimes barefoot, but to walk the land that they were purchasing. And then upon the final uh, purchase and sale agreement, that their sandal, a sandal would be exchanged as a sign of the commitment to what they'd walked. Not permanently, the, sh the sandal would be given back. It's akin to the handshake of our time. And by the way, who even does handshake deals anymore? But this is what's at stake. And so to be called the family of the unsandaled was to say that this person and his entire family are, are people who do not follow up on their commitments. They're people who, they might say something, but you can't count on them to do it. They're untrustworthy. And so this would become an issue of an adverse relationship, uh, reputation rather, within the community of God's people. It was detrimental to them in terms of trying to transact other business and so on and so forth. Well, that brings us to Ruth chapter four. 
In Ruth chapter four, we have both a negative and a positive response to the Levirate marriage law. Now, the book of Ruth, I, I looked it up. We actually preached through the book of Ruth two years ago in November. And it was actually on this very Sunday that I preached on Ruth chapter four. And so I'm gonna really gloss this story because we just don't have time. But if you want detail on the chapter, November 22nd, 2020, you can listen to that message. By way of reminder, or if you're new to the Bible, Ruth, who is a Moabitess, she's not an Israelite, she's a foreigner, and her Jewish Israelite mother-in-law return to Israel. And they come to Israel essentially with nothing. Right? They have no male uh, to provide for their needs. And they're in a position, particularly Ruth, where she may uh, stand to become some sort of, in some sort of servitude. And through a series of events... Within the community of God's people, the Levirate marriage law kind of comes into play. There's this opportunity for a near male relative to redeem the property and to redeem the family line of Naomi through marriage to Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And so a near relative is brought forward and he's presented with the option of redeeming her property and redeeming Ruth by marriage and he refuses he says, if I do that, there'll be great cost to my estate and my children's inheritance could be at, at stake as well. And so there is a sandal exchange. There's no spitting, but there's a sandal exchange. But interestingly, there's no disgrace like we see in chapter 38 of Genesis. Now, there's a couple reasons that this is likely. Number one, uh, the law of the Leviathan marriage law has, has some nuance to it in, how, in terms of how it actually plays out. And there's been some centuries from Deuteronomy to Ruth. And so there's been a little bit of, uh, likely there's some, some change to how it applies. But I, I also think it's because uh, this kinsman redeemer is not a brother, he's a more distant relative. There's not the same level of obligation on him. It's a little bit more of an option of his choice. But thirdly, and probably the most clear in the context of Ruth chapter four, is that Boaz wants to marry Ruth and he's the next guy in line. He's slightly more distant in his relationship to Naomi. And he has quickly fallen in love with Ruth. And so Boaz comes forward as the one who will redeem this family line. And actually, he provides lavish fulfillment and redemption times three, we could say. We'll look at how that is. Let's read just a couple of verses from Ruth chapter four. Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, widow, as my wife. And listen, he understands the law here. He says, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. And all the elders and those at the city gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Boaz steps up and he understands the pastoral implications, right? Of caring for the widow and of loving his brother. And he steps into that redemption uh, and, and at great cost to his own estate, redeems Ruth, ultimately Naomi, really. But he does so in such a way that he actually redeems uh, all three of the Old Testament laws where redemption was possible. First, he redeems the property of the family line at great cost to himself, willingly, and we see that law in Leviticus 
chapter 25. He also redeems the personhood of Ruth, if you will, saving her from certain servitude and bringing her to a place where she can be cared for. We also see that law in Leviticus 25. And then, of course, he preserves the family line, the progeny, redeems the progeny of, uh, of Malon in particular, but of Naomi's line in what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in so doing, there's this blessing that's pronounced on him where the people say, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And this is a promise that will echo through the centuries as Boaz and Ruth get married, they actually become ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll celebrate in just a couple of weeks, where is it that the Messiah, the Son of God in human flesh comes to be born? But in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And Jesus represents the very standing of Boaz. But here in this text, Boaz is actually a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prefigures Christ. Well, how does he do that? Boaz willingly, and it cost to himself, redeems Ruth and her family in these three ways, and Jesus does the same thing. Jesus redeems us in the sense of our property in that he restores whatever it is that we lose when it, when it comes to following him. Listen to his words in Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, mother, children or fields, that is family or possessions, because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. This is a lavish blessing that Jesus says for those who give their lives for me and it costs them something, I will restore everything that they've lost a hundred times over and inherit eternal life. Now, this one doesn't land as heavily for us because it probably didn't cost you your job or a relationship with your family to follow Jesus. But in many different places around the world, even today, that would be the case. And this passage would bring great comfort. But notice the lavishness of the promise. Not only does Jesus restore that which we've lost, but he says, and give you eternal life. You know, when I was growing up here at GBC, our senior pastor, when I was growing up, Bob McCoy, used to say uh, often when talking about the blessings of being a part of a growing church, i.e. the generosity we talked about this morning, he used to say something like, all this in heaven too, comes right from this verse, right? That God would bless our church materially, we'd be able to do all these things, and we have eternity with him in heaven forever to come. That's the lavish blessing of God. He redeems our property, if you will. Like Boaz, he also redeems uh, our sense of personhood. That is, he frees you from whatever it is you're ashamed of. Romans chapter six tells us, we are no longer slaves to sin. When you give your life to Jesus, whatever it is that you've done in your past that is dastardly or deceitful or that, that causes you to hang your head in shame. Christ forgives that, he redeems that and, and, and he does no longer, you're freed from it. And I think sometimes that's one of the last things that keeps someone from giving their lives to Jesus is you don't know what I've done and he does. And he pays lavishly to redeem you from that. And then finally, like Boaz, Jesus 
redeems our progeny. Spiritually speaking, Jesus adopts us into his forever family. Romans chapter eight tells us that we have the spirit of sonship whereby we call God our father. And the word there is daddy, it's Abba. It's the word of of intimate uh, child and father fellowship. It's almost scandalous that we can call through Christ and what he's done for us in his death resurrection, uh, uh, we can call the God of the universe, he who created everything that we see, including the cosmos, that, that he who parted the Red Sea and brought Israel through it, that we can call him essentially daddy because Christ adopts us into, our, into his forever family. You know, probably like you, I get called a lot of things Right? There are different titles, mister and pastor and just by my first name. Sometimes I get called things I can't say from stage. Your first service didn't laugh at that either. That doesn't actually happen. I'm just kidding. But you know, when my kids were small, they called me daddy, right? That was what most, in most families, and sometimes it's different. They don't actually call me that anymore. On one hand, it's a little sad. But there are different terms of endearment in this season of my life that are super special. My oldest son calls me pops all the time. Hey, Pops, how you doing? My youngest son calls me uh, Papa, which is just really funny. They have different names. But those, the way that they speak to me is different than how you speak to me because they're my children. And that's how we relate to God. Because what does Jesus do? He restores what we've lost. He frees us from what we're ashamed of. And he adopts us into his forever family. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I don't know how to lay it out in a way that's more compelling than that. But we've got more to do here. Uh, Let's move to the next section. Uh, And it's about to get weird again, just so you know. Verse 11. If two men are fighting with each other and the wife of one steps in to rescue her husband from the one who's striking him and she puts out her hand and grabs his genitals, you are to cut off her hand. Do not show pity. Do not have differing measures and weights in your bag. Heavy ones and light ones do not have differing dry measures in your house, a larger and a smaller. You must have a full and honest weight and a full and honest dry measure so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you for everyone who does such things and acts unfairly is detestable to the Lord your God. Okay, again, laws that, God, where are you going with this? I I thought myself so clever in titling these two laws, fair fights and fair measures. But in, in all truth here, or in all seriousness, this law in verse 11, it's both connected to what we just looked at in that the sense of progeny was, was of, uh, of utmost importance in ancient Israel. And so anything that would put at jeopardy the ability of a family to produce and perpetuate themselves was taken very seriously. But this is also a deterrent law. And it's one of the only places in the Old Testament that I'm aware of where there's a very specific case law, very specific scenario that could be applied very broadly to any behavior of this kind. Again, that would put at risk uh, the perpetuating of a family line. And that what's, at, what's in essence here is preserving two things that make, marks God's people's de- being different, right? Two things, decency, and here's that word we've used a lot, dignity. 
that God's people were to behave in a way that was decent and dignified. Now, Paul kind of nods to this in 1 Corinthians. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ, and he uses the analogy of a physical body and that there's interdependent parts that have to work together. And listen to how he talks about essentially private parts. He says, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, decency, and dignity. So by way of application, Christians should fight honorably. Christians should fight honorably. Now, I'm not advocating for physical altercations between brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I don't think that happens. I don't think people here at GBC get in physical fights. But uh, I want you to think about this in terms of uh, how it plays out in, co in the context of maybe a uh, sub-doctrinal difference in your Bible study where you find yourself arguing for a certain position. Or maybe if you're a Christian employer and, and you're disagreeing with your employees or certainly as a parent or within your marriage, if you have conflict in your marriage, Christians are to fight honorably. That doesn't mean dispassionately, but when we fight, we don't attack personally. We don't humiliate and we don't dishonor. At least we ought not to. Christians should fight honorably, preserving decency and dignity. Uh, I want to move to the next one, honest weights and measures. We looked at this last week. God's people are to have integrity in business. God is not a God of uh, differing measures, and he's not a God of partiality. Job 34 tells us, God shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich or poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Christians should be truthful in business couple examples of this. Christians should not lie or be deceitful to seal the big business deal. Even if it's going to jeopardize the transaction of the deal, we need to be truthful. Sometimes that's hard. Christians should pay their taxes in full and on time as much as they are able. Certainly taking advantage of all, any and all tax law that applies, but Christians should pay their taxes in full and on time. Christians should not uh, take from the workplace supplies that belong to the workplace for their own personal use. And on and on we could go. I'm sure you can think of examples yourselves. We're to be truthful in business. Well, again, more we could say on these two uh, as we think practically about our own lives, but let's get to the last section. And this last law before really what is a conclusion next week uh, might seem a little out of place. Remember, this section of Deuteronomy is really about God's people being, God, God uh, restating the law to a new generation, that his people would be different than the surrounding nations and prepping them to enter and take possession of the promised land. It's all preparatory. And so this last law might seem out of place, but it does begin with a word that's repeated over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. It's this word, remember. In this case, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and they attacked your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Why such a harsh decree against the Amalekites and why the em emphasis? Blot them out and don't forget. Well, first, who are the Amalekites? 
And again, why is this part of the law of God's people getting ready to enter the promised land? The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin. And one commentator said they were a nomadic, marauding tribe from the Negev, which is the desert region south of Beersheba. These are a ruthless people. So two reasons why God says to wipe them out before you enter the promised land. One, because the Amalekites' behavior warranted it. We'll look at that. And two, because God decreed it, because he said so. Let's look at those two in turn and then we'll make our final application. Why is their removal from the promised land or from the, from the land part of inheriting the promised land? Uh, I want us to think about that sort of in terms of the pastoral applications. Moses and the whole book of Deuteronomy have been about, been about presenting a God who is a God of love, not only to his own people, but to, even to foreigners. And here in this chapter, animals. And yet here's this law to wipe out the Amalekites. And God makes it clear that there are two issues about their behavior. Number one, that they attack the weak. And number two, that they don't fear God. We see this in verse 18. They met you along the way. They attacked the stragglers, those sort of uh, uh, that were weak and worn out. Remember the kind of God that Moses says his people serves. He's a God who cares for the orphan and the widow and the marginalized. And this is a people group who specifically target to kill the, the marginalized and those who are on the fringes of society. This is an affront to God's very nature and character. And God says they have no fear of God. They are utterly wicked. It's as if their wickedness has reached the fever pitch of, the, of those in Noah's day where the, every inclination of their hearts is only evil all the time. And so God says, wipe them out. Secondly, God decrees this as a part of the law. If you read Exodus 17, uh, the, the destruction of the Amalekites is part of the Sinai covenant. And it has two specific uh, sort of functions in terms of being part of the law. One, it's the marker of God's fulfillment and faithfulness of his promises. Note verse 19. When the Lord God gives you rest from all the enemies around you, etc. Not if the Lord gives you rest, but when this happens, do this. And that's the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. So it's a marker of God's faithfulness, but it's also a test or response of Israel's obedience. Both at the same time. Exodus 17 it, it actually talks about the blotting out the memory of Amalek from under heaven as a stipulation, one of the final stipulations of the Sinai covenant. Well, how on earth do we apply, apply this? Uh, we've talked about the fact that Egypt pictures our life before Christ, right? In bondage, in bondage to sin. The Amalekites picture what Paul would call in the King James, a besetting sin, that is, it's that thing in my life that's been a challenge to my obedience and faithfulness to God since the day I started following him. It's something that needs to get in the, in the language there, blotted out. Well, how do we do that? I think the writer to Hebrews gives us a clue. He says this, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We'll continue the rest of the scripture in a minute, but know what he says. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And that's a little bit vague, but I submit to you that we marry that up with this idea that the Amalekites could picture something that's a besetting sin. That might be something that has happened to you or something you've done or something that an area of temptation that you just struggle with. Let me say it this way. If you were abused in some way as a young person, 
that might be the thing that hinders you. And by the way, that's not something that you have to go on your own to try to blot out of your life. It may be that pastoral or clinical counseling or other support from your church family and others is necessary for that. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, whether it's something that hinders or a sin, and we know what those are, that entangle us, throw it off. Let's continue with the scripture. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says to do three things. Number one, throw off what hinders and entangles. And this is the idea of something that happens daily. Throw that off, shed it, and then run with perseverance. It's the idea here of run the daily race, put one foot in front of the other and do that. And as you do it, look to Jesus. And specifically, he says, look to the cross. Because Christ endured the scorn and shame of the cross for you. At the end of the verse, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In sitting down, it was that mission accomplished. It's done. Your salvation has been purchased for you. And how do you throw off that besetting sin? You run the daily race, looking to Jesus, looking to the cross. And so we wanna sing these words this morning and then I'll come back and we'll kind of wrap things up. Go ahead and stand together as we sing this final song.
You know, I don't, I don't know how your week was. I had one of those weeks where I felt like the demands on me and the people that needed my attention were such that nobody got 100%. And it was a struggle. Maybe that's been you this week. Maybe this week really stretched you in some way and you can sympathize with that. And there's one pervading pastoral point that just really comforted me this week as I was studying some of these weird cultural things and really looking for what is God teaching his people? There's one thing that sort of kind of umbrellaed the whole series and it was this, the God of the universe wants to walk with me and be with me through every little piece and part of my life, my sexuality, my money and my business dealings, my friendships, my relationships, my church life. He wants to be in all of it. He wants to be with me and with you in that manner. And as I thought about that in light of throwing off what entangles, running the daily race and looking to him, that all of a sudden seemed easier because we're throwing off running and looking toward a God who loves us, who already provided for our salvation, who wants to be with us. I don't know if that's an encouragement to you this morning, but let's close in prayer together. God, we thank you that you are a God who, even from your Old Testament law, make it clear you wanna be in our life. Even as Christians, you wanna be in our mess. You wanna speak wisdom into the different nuanced, really challenging, difficult situations that we face. You're a God who is not afar off, but has come near through Jesus. And you wanna be with us, you wanna to minister to us. God, that you would wanna walk with the likes of me, with the likes of us. Thank you, Jesus. Give you the rest of this day. We pray in your name, amen.